a Podcast One production. The following production includes explicit language and deals with adult themes. Parental guidance is advised for those under 15 years. I'm Adam Shand and welcome to The Trials of the Vampire. Over the next 10 episodes, I'll be telling the story of Melbourne's so-called vampire gigolo, Shane Chartres-Abbott, who was murdered in 2003. But let's start from the beginning. In August 2002, Shane was accused of raping and mutilating a client, Penny, a former Thai stripper and prostitute living in Melbourne, Australia. We can't identify her for legal reasons. The alleged assault was savage and included the partial amputation of the victim's tongue. She survived despite her injuries and told police that Shane had attacked her. She also said that Shane had claimed to be a 200-year-old vampire that needed the fresh blood of victims to survive. In this series, we'll be exploring the attack, the trial that followed, and the murder of the defendant, and then the ripples that flowed out across the state of Victoria. Shane claimed he was innocent of this heinous attack. He planned to tell another story in court about a plan to murder him that night in the Hotel Seville. The jury never heard that story. On June 4, 2003, Shane was on his way to the court in Melbourne to give evidence. He never made it. Two men intercepted him outside his house and shot him down on the front lawn. For three years, there were no arrests and no trail to follow for the police investigating Shane's murder until a surprise confession took the case in a new and sensational direction. Serving police and former officers were accused of facilitating the hit, creating alibis and concealing the murder weapon. From that day, the investigation became more about establishing whether there was a link between the underworld and Victoria Police than finding Shane's killer. Well, there's a few things about it that stand out and will continue to stand out. I mean, the first is the scale, the scale and the expense. I mean, this is the most expensive police investigation in Victorian history. The estimates are that police spent about $30 million trying to get to the the bottom of who killed Shane Chartres-Abbott. 14 years and $30 million later, we still don't know. Chip Legrand is an investigative journalist on the Australian newspaper. Together, we dug into aspects of this case for nearly two years while I was working there, without ever coming to a sturdy conclusion as to who pulled the trigger. But we did come to understand what drove the police investigation and why, despite spending $30 million, it failed to shed any further light on what happened. It was a an extraordinary period um, in terms of the rate at which criminals were killing criminals and sometimes in, in full public view and so forth. The backdrop to this was going on was, of course, it was at the height of the gangland war when, when Chartres Abbott was killed. And it probably helps to explain why the initial homicide investigation into Chartres Abbott, who wasn't a, he wasn't a prominent gangland figure. I mean, he didn't have connections into any of those worlds in terms of the bigger plays that were going on within the, in the Melbourne criminal establishment. And so it probably helps explain why the homicide investigation in the first instance probably wasn't given the, the priority that it deserved and that it needed. And that had it been given that priority, it might have come to a fairly swift resolution. It was a different time in Melbourne, that's for sure. 
that felt lawless in a dangerous, unfamiliar way that fascinated and terrified Melburnians in equal measure. There was an execution on average every six weeks or so through 2003. The cops called it a self-cleaning oven. The underworld had become so hot that everyone inside was turning to ash. While the case of the vampire gigolo remains a story largely untold, it resonates to this day in the state of Victoria in the sense that it includes claims that serving and past police officers had a hand in this cold-blooded murder. It resonates because it's replete with allegations of unsafe testimony, of backroom deals with informers that call into question the integrity of the legal system, and the expedient manner in which investigations and prosecutions were carried out. This was more than just a murder, but a direct attack on justice on several fronts. The other aspect of this case, which in some ways is unique, is it was really at the heart of a culture war in Victoria Police. I mean, I mean this was the, the divider if you like, between what was seen as the, the old guard and the old way of doing things in Victoria Police and the new broom, which had come in mainly from the Australian Federal Police and also from New South Wales with um, Christine Nixon, and they were determined to clean up what they saw as residual um, corruption, but seen to do it themselves and not expose the force to a, uh, to a Royal Commission. But one thing they didn't want is to have a the kind of Royal Commission that we had in Queensland, that we had in New South Wales, into police, because the problem with that from a, from a police command point of view is once something like that starts, you lose control of where it might end up. And so, investigators chose to believe the word of an informer who confessed that he'd killed the vampire gigolo, despite the fact that he was, by general agreement, an inveterate liar. But in this case, he offered more than just a confession, an opportunity for Victoria Police to investigate allegations of corruption in its ranks on the force's own terms. He promised them he was going to deliver a truckload of police, a truckload of corrupt police. I mean, what he was talking about was a, a network of corrupt police that he was going to expose, which to these investigators, I mean, that was a, this, uh, a delicious prospect, the idea of being able to to uncover something like that. If you imagine the, the death or the murder of Shane Chartres Abbott as the, as the brick that's dropped in the pond, then you have the, the uh, concentric circles that go out and, and envelop any number of people throughout the police. I sometimes wonder why I'm doing this. Maybe we should let the dead be dead, let them rest. I've been told that more than once lately especially when the known facts of their demise seem to fit so neatly, at least when viewed from a distance. Why disturb things? It begins in the early hours of August 17, 2002, at the Hotel Seville in the well-to-do suburb of South Yarra. A woman is viciously raped and mutilated in room 307. The victim is a tie-born 29-year-old woman. We'll call her Penny. She's a former prostitute and stripper, a consort of drug dealers, but she thinks that's all behind her. Around midnight, she meets the male prostitute that she's booked. The man at her door calls himself Simon, but she knows him as Shane. The next morning at 11.30, Penny is found semi-conscious in the shower recess of her room. She's naked and covered in blood. She suffered injuries consistent with a prolonged and vicious assault. For the police, there's really only one suspect. This is a tape-recorded interview between and Shane Morris Chartres Abbott of Reservoir, conducted at the Sexual Crimes Office at 412 St Kilda Road. I've reconstructed Shane's interview with police after talking with his legal counsel and reviewing their case files. 
Actors are playing Shane and the police who arrested him. All right, what is your full name and address? Uh, Shane, Shane Maurice Murray Chartres-Sabot. All right, I intend to interview in relation to intentionally causing serious injury and rape. The suspect's manner is calm and collected despite his situation. At 6.25am that morning, Shane's home was raided and he was arrested. It's not a time of day he's accustomed to in his line of work, yet the brown eyes are bright and attentive as he listens to the questions. Can you state your age and date of birth for me? Yep, 27, and I was born the 9th of October 1974. At 27, Shane looks younger, kind of boyish, with shoulder-length mouse-brown hair tied back in a ponytail. His skin is smooth and unmarked. There are no tattoos and the fingernails are perfectly manicured. Do you agree that earlier when we were at your house, you told us that you knew who Penny was and that she's a client of yours? Yes, I agree with that, yes. And that you work as a male prostitute? Yes. Or escort? Yes, um, a male escort. To the detective, the young man across the desk doesn't readily fit with the crimes he will soon charge him with. But when you work sex crimes for a while, you learn that appearances can be deceiving. After calling legal aid and his father, Shane gives no comment responses to most of the rest of the interview. And do you know a girl by the name of Penny? I wish to make no more comments. It's three days since the incident and the victim is in hospital and will remain there for another two weeks. She's still recovering her memory and has given police a vague account of an argument over payment that rapidly escalated into a savage assault. You became quite angry and annoyed at her for almost saying she was carrying on about this and proceeding to assault her. No comment. And during that assault, she was struck repeatedly about the face and eyes. She also has the signs of strangulation around her neck. No comment. At what point did you have sex with Penny on that occasion? No comment. She claims that after the assault, well, she doesn't claim, the fact is that after this, being struck about the face, she was also... Something was used, pliers or or something was used, pliers or something similar to grab her on the tongue. And she had about an inch cut off her tongue with a knife or something similar. No comment. And she also received, her tongue was almost ripped out of her mouth, as well as cut from the end of her tongue. No comment. She also has cut marks or bite marks surrounding both nipples on her breasts. No comment. And extensive penetration wounds to both her anus and vagina. No comment. And I put it to you that these were caused by yourself during this assault. No comment. The victim will further allege that Shane confided he was not just a gigolo, but a 200-year-old vampire that needed fresh blood to stay alive. It was a headline writer's delight, the vampire gigolo, that feasted on his victim, then left her for dead. But it could only ever be a passing oddity, a bizarre talking point until they locked him up. You're going to be charged with a rape intentionally causing serious injury to Penny. You are not obliged to say or do anything unless you wish to do so. Whatever you say or do may be recorded and given evidence. Do you understand this? Yes. Do you wish to say anything in answer to the charge or charges? Just what's going to happen to me now? With Shane's fate in the balance, let's take a short break now before we hear from the man who prosecuted the vampire gigolo. The case of the Queen and Shane Chartres-Abbott was set down for a two-week trial in June 2003. George Slim was the prosecutor in Shane's case. He's locked up some of Australia's worst sex offenders. But once the case is over, he tends to delete the details from his memory. I think it was just another trial, you know. As we were running, it was another trial. A bit bizarre. A bit off the beaten track. But... but another trial. Yeah. Do you think after a while in your job, yeah. you become a little bit inured to the Sure, trial? you have to be. I think, you, yeah, I'm sure I have. 
you know, you turn them over, you do them, I do them as best I can within the rules, but you do turn them over, uh, you know, and I remember, there, you know that bloke, um, one of these heavy rapists who killed someone recently in the last couple of years, I forget his name even, but I think I prosecuted him years ago on a plea of guilty. Not um, Adrian Ernest I Bailey. Maybe him. Adrian Ernest Bailey raped and murdered Irish woman Jill Maher in Melbourne in 2012. It was a huge case at the time. Yet from the beginning, the prosecutor George Slim felt there was something different about Shane's trial that he remembered. There was always some underlying mystery about it. You felt so as well? Oh, yeah, I did. I think the, the nature of the case gave it an air of mystery. What was done to her, their connection with each other, and what was done to her, cutting off a tongue. That's mysterious. It's unusual. And there was one Crown witness that also raised the prosecutor's suspicion. And then that said that witness, there was something uncomfortable about how, when he was asked questions, as if he was... Uh, he knew things that he didn't want to reveal. Despite the overwhelming evidence against him, Shane was planning to plead not guilty, and that witness was key to his defence. His story was that he was not a rapist, but in fact the intended victim of an even more bizarre murder conspiracy. He was to be the star of a snuff movie, an underground sex film which would climax in his actual death. He said at the time I wasn't even sure that I even knew what a snuff movie was. Um, I, he said, I knew because I looked at her and I could tell that, nah, she meant it. This was for real. And she said, uh, you know, you've got to go because someone's coming back at, at, at a certain time. Sandra Gibson was once a counsellor to sex workers in Melbourne. She was with Shane every day for six months before his trial. And I did say to him very clearly first up, Shane, if I think for one minute that you have there's any truth in the matter that you've been involved in this or capable of it, I cannot work with you. And he just looked me straight in the eyes and just said, I didn't, I did not do it. Please let me tell my story. The defendant would never give his version and the case would never reach a verdict. Shane was murdered on his way to court during the trial, on the very day that he was to give evidence. Given that we're coming close to the end of the Crown case and there was a chance he was going to give evidence, they might have been worried about what he's going to say. Or high-profile people in Melbourne that he had serviced. Yeah, that he had connections with of some description. That, that I'm sure that crossed my mind. It sort of... Yeah, it reminds me of back in that period when you heard of these these gangland figures, if you like, being yeah. killed and yeah. the question would be asked, have you got a list of suspects? And the police would point to the phone book and say, anyone in there? <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of people have a lot of... Some people have a lot of enemies, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. In the silence of death, Shane still speaks, but in different ways now. In the grief of his loved ones, two boys from two mothers are growing up without a father. And as we'll explore, his case is still rippling through the halls of power. In 2003, I knew nothing of Shane beyond what was in the newspapers. The vampire gigolo lived in a quiet suburban street with his de facto, a 20-year-old nurse named Kathleen, who was pregnant with his child. It's out in Melbourne's north, Reservoir, which is spelt like reservoir, like in the Tarantino film. But for some local quirk, it gets reservoir. Shane already had a child from a marriage earlier to Nadine. 
He liked dogs, sadomasochism and books about vampires. And that was pretty much all we knew about him when he was murdered. It's not much of a legacy, is it? Especially for your kids to carry around. Their dad was the vampire gigolo who got shot in the neck. That's one of my motivations for doing this, by the way. I think everyone deserves to have their truth told, whether it's good or evil. Let's start with the name, Shane Chartres Abbott. We've all been getting it wrong, at least according to Shane, as he pointed out in his interview with detectives. Shane Maurice Murray Chartres Abbott. It's Chartres Abbott, not Chartres Abbott, okay? It's an unusual name, to say the least, and searches of births, deaths and marriages around the country yielded little. After Shane's murder, a few more fragments came out in the media. He was one of nine children born to William Francis Foster Chartres Abbott, born 1916. There were at least three marriages and numerous relationships, but official confirmation of Shane's father's lineage was proving elusive. Shane told his alleged victim that he was half French on his father's side, but there was nothing in the French archives either, except references to a 12th century cleric, John of Chartres, Abbot of Tehran, which was appealing in a romantic way, but tenuous in fact. There was a handful of Chartres abbots on Facebook, mostly living in northern New South Wales and Queensland, including one Francois Chartres Abbott, an elderly smiling gent at the keyboard of an ancient computer. I sent messages to all of them and none replied, so I scrolled through their friend lists, searching, just like a burglar, for other ways in. That's when I saw the name Kim Abbott. Worth a shot. Maybe it's a cousin, I thought. Kim, how are you? Good. Kim is Shane's half-brother, the eldest son of William Francis Foster Chartres Abbott. He doesn't use the Chartres name, so the media never found him. Well, no one knows I exist. I don't even know how you know I exist. <laughs> Only through Facebook, I guess, you know? So I wonder about your general impressions of, of what you've seen so far. Well, I, it's only what I've read. Him leaving his place, going somewhere, and then, you know, someone blasting him. I, I put it down to something else. Didn't put it down to sex or, I thought, you know, maybe he's involved in drugs or this sort of stuff. So I really don't know. What questions are left in your mind? Who, who contacted the shoot and um, why, you know? What, what was the real reason? That he was you know, bit someone's tongue off, some woman's tongue? That I didn't see any pictures of the tongue or, or the lady that was involved. Nothing from her. You probably read about the allegations about police involvement in providing the address. And... I just think Melbourne used to be like Sydney, you know? And it's probably worse. Kim had long ago given up trying to understand the fate of his half-brother. I know he had a brain freeze and I'm, I can't begin to analyse it. His problem was that he talked too much. He was a communicator. People are surprised at the level of violence that was alleged in that attack on Penny. He's, he's not a violent person. He's, as I said, he's a talker. He's, he'd talk his way out of something. He wouldn't... Uh, w- why would he lose his cool having sex with someone? You know, like, it's just... As a professional. Um, of course, yeah. uh, He was Christian, you know, like, doesn't seem to fit him. Yeah. So the first time I met him, he was... A devout Christian, you know? The contact between Kim and Shane had been sporadic at best over the years, as it had been between all the Chartres Abbott children. As I was to discover, most of Shane's siblings had kept as far away as possible from the family, for different reasons, but all of them related to their upbringing. 
At 64, Kim's had a tough life, enduring a string of serious injuries, as well as illnesses he says are related to exposure to Agent Orange. He was once a licensed plumber, but he self-medicated his pain with heroin and ended up homeless. I was on the streets, you know, so I understand the street mentality. So glad to get off the street, you know, like to, to live in, in limbo for years and years because you think you're going to while in rehab for his drug addiction in Sydney, Kim tracked down his father. He was in the phone book in a small northern New South Wales town called Casino. So how did you feel uh, when you met him? Just took it as come. I was nervous, of course, first time, and, and he didn't he didn't recognise me. I, I had to recognise him. I mean, I, it was pretty strange, you know. It's pretty strange. So you knocked on the door. Knocked on his door, and that was it. That was the start of it, you know. He, he was a very gentle guy, but you could see his, his other side. But that if he if he didn't get his way, you know what I mean. Shane had a powerful reason to stay away from his father. He told people that William Francis Foster Chartres Abbott had abused him as a child. But Shane said a lot of things, and there was no way of checking it. Strangely, when Shane was arrested on the rape charges, his first call was not to his girlfriend, not to the mother of his child, but to his abuser, his father. Do you agree that since we stopped the interview, I contacted your father? Yes. And that you spoke with him on the phone? Yes. Chartres Abbott Sr. died in August 2011, so I can't ask him about this call. Your father was, was born in France? No, he, I think he was Spanish, Mexican, or he claims he was kind of between France and Spain, I guess. I'm not sure. You know, Chartres Bot is a, is a strange name, and, and there isn't anyone on the planet with the name Chartres Bot. That's interesting. Everyone's pronouncing it wrongly, by the way. Yeah, but it's Chartres Bot. That's, that's how the French would say, you know, Chartres yeah. Bot. His Christian name was Francois, wasn't it? He wasn't Frank. That's it, Francois. But Mum used to say, oh, it's just a gimmick. Because <laughs> it was a gimmick, you know. He, he looked at life differently. He, <laughs> he was into the nature of people, you know. That, that was his, his bag, you know. But he was a hippie in my eyes, you know. That's, that's it. He's just a down-to-earth earth guy. Just earth. Do you think you're a bit of a hippie? Of course yeah. I am. <laughs> but I'm a work hippie. <laughs> what I do believe is that we are light, light energy. We're cocooned. This is a, the birth place. As soon as we, we pass over, that's it. The light energy's there. And we're, in the, we're in the love. We're in the place of love. You get all these ISIS and cases where they're cutting off heads. They're going to get a shock when they go there because everyone's going to say, oh, there's no such thing as carnage here. You know? So you've done all this carnage, so you'll have to understand why you did it. It's not relevant to, to what is real, you know? If Shane did what he was accused of, I mean, you don't believe in a hell that he would have no, believed in as a Christian? No, I don't believe in He might have. But I don't believe in the hell. The hell is that you've got to work out why the fuck you did what you did. There might be something in that. Hell is being condemned to a place of love where you have to work out why you did what you did. But there's also a hell on earth for those left behind. And they bear the scars of what you did and they're trying to work that out too. Kim never lived with his father, but his daughter Patina from Frank's second marriage certainly did. It was horrible, it was a nightmare. You never knew what was going to happen one day from the next. Mm. It's just the way it was, because Mum and Dad fought constantly, just the way it was. Next on The Trials of the Vampire, we'll reveal the dark secret in the story of the Chartres Abbott family. There was a thing about they escaped a murder or something like that. They had this past that haunted him. 
I don't know if it was reality or what it was. And Dad reached over and punched her in the face and um, she jumped out of the car and I jump out too. And um, I run in, jumped the fence to hide. But then he come back with the car and he ran her over. Crikey, so the omen's been over the family because of that as well, I suppose. And Shane's father speaks from beyond the grave. I'm often asked, what inspired me to be a teller of tales? Tell us a story, tell us a story, tell us a story. The Trials of the Vampire is a Podcast One production. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Producer, writer and narrator is Adam Shand. Editing, mixing and original music score is by Matt Nikolic. Research by Nicole Gunn. Additional research by Alison Caldwell. Associate producer is Carly Humby.